0: Access tech can help you see. Hello, I'm Sharon Brooks, director of.
1: Your attention, please. The WDW Radio Podcast now departing from track number one for a grand circle tour of the Magic Kingdom. With With stops at the rumor mill, the best best of the best, and the voices behind the magic, magic. it's it's your Walt Disney World Information information Station, station. starring Lou Lou Moncello. W...
2: Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. Thanks for tuning in once again. This is show number five for the week of March 11th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and this week I'm back from Walt Disney World with a special treat. An exclusive interview with Disney legend, author, and recipient of his own window on Main Street, Charles Ridgway. I'm also going to have news and views from Walt Disney World and a visit to the WDW rumor mill, which includes Pirates and Princesses, The Haunted Mansion, and more. For these segments, I'm also going to welcome in a special guest, Cara Goldsberry, author of The Luxury Guide to Walt Disney World, who's going to discuss some recent announcements from the Disney company that will forever change the landscape of the resort. Mike Scopa joins me as we answer another question about a best of the best at Walt Disney World, in this somewhat extended show. Like I said, this week's show is going to run a little long, as there was lots to talk about and cover, not only with Kara about the recent announcements from Disney, but with Charles Ridgway. I had a chance to interview him one-on-one at the Disney MGM Studios, and like I say, during the introduction to the segment, there was so much great information that he shared that it was really tough to not only keep the interview short but to edit it down without losing too much, so I really hope that you enjoy my conversation with him. I was also planning on doing a recap of my trip to Disney, including a review of a new restaurant, the Pirate and Princess Party, and more, but uh, we're going to have to save that for next week or the week after, as I just didn't have enough time to get through everything, including your emails and voicemails and the seven wonders that I wanted to do do this week, but I promise to feature these and more trivia segments in the upcoming week, so... Since I'm talking about time and lack of it, let's just get on with the show. For this week's news and views from Walt Disney World segment, uh, Disney had made what I consider to be two Pretty major announcements, and uh, what I thought I wanted to do was bring on somebody to help give her expert opinion, especially about one of these two, and that is Cara Goldsberry. She's the author of The Luxury Guide to the Walt Disney World Resort, How to Get the Most Out of the Best Disney Has to Offer. She's also the webmaster of LuxuryDisneyGuide.com. Cara, how are you? How are you?
0: I'm great, Lou. How are
2: you? Good. Thank you for coming on the WDW Radio Show. Uh, you obviously know where I am heading with uh, with the news that I'm going to kick off this with. Disney made two, I think, pretty major announcements this past week. And uh, the one that I want to kind of go through first with you is the introduction of a 900-acre luxury resort anchored by the very prestigious Four Seasons Hotel and Resort. Um, there's also going to be another piece of property on the Western Edge of Resort that's going to have some value options. But what I really want to talk more, uh, at least at the beginning, is about this uh, introduction of the four seasons into Walt Disney World. All
0: I can say is, yippee! (laughs) (laughs) I am so excited. Well, you and I had spoken... And and I'm sure a lot of people
2: are. I mean, I think it sounds
0: fantastic.
2: Yeah, we had spoken um, offline about this in the past, and we had talked about, obviously, the Grand Floridian has been the the flagship resort for Walt Disney World um, since it opened. But as somebody who has covered the luxury aspects of not only Walt Disney World, but the entire Orlando area, you had always kind of felt that it didn't really Match up to some of the very high-end properties. Is that right?
0: And that's true. I don't. In, in terms of theming and uh, setting, you can't beat the Grand Floridian. But people who are used to staying in a Four Seasons, staying in a Ritz Carlton, are I think sometimes shocked when they show up at the Grand Floridian. They know, you know, they're paying five hundred dollars plus a night, and they get and. They can't believe that this is it, because the Four Seasons, ritz Carlton, that type of a company, has a totally different level of accommodation, of quality, and of service. And that is not what you get at the Grand Floridian, even though you're paying the prices that you would pay, say, at at a Four Seasons. So... I've always, I kept waiting and waiting for Disney to come up with a five-star resort. Grand Floridian really is a four-star resort. Disney doesn't have a five-star resort. And so I never really thought that they would actually allow Four Seasons on property. I thought maybe they would hire a Four Seasons to manage one of their properties. But, um, so, I think that that name recognition is going to make a huge difference for a lot of people. I think they're going to say, whoa, Four Seasons, I'm going
2: Now, just for for people maybe that are not familiar with having stayed either at the Grand Floridian and or a Four Seasons, what does something like a Four Seasons offer that the Grand Floridian does not? Because for many of us, the Grand Floridian seems like it is the the ultimate in luxury on property.
0: Number one, let's start with the the guest rooms, because I think that's where I see a huge difference. Yes, the Grand Floridian guest rooms are nice, although... I don't know if you know it, but they're, they're getting ready for a, a, a remodel. They need it desperately. It's been seven years. It's time. So I think if anyone staying at the Grand Floridian the next year are probably going to be a little disappointed because everything's starting to look worn and tired. But, uh, you know, regardless, that is supposed to change in the next year. But Never Wonder Rooms are not that large. They're not any larger, really, than, say, the Yacht Club or uh, not even as large. I don't think it's the Polynesian. So the rooms are just a normal size. The furniture quality is, I think, at the Grand Floridian is nothing compared to some of the new things coming on, say, at the Contemporary. Um, you know, they're just normal rooms. They're, they're a room that you would get anywhere. Secondly, service is absolutely amazing at a Four Seasons. Everything, your wish is their command. Everything is done in, a, in an instant, it is instantaneous, it's fabulous. You, you get in there, you've got fratay linens, you have, you know, the best down pillows possible. Everything is top quality. Whereas the Grand Floridian, everything is like, say, a four-star hotel. Say, let's compare it to, let's compare it to Hyatt Regency. I think that maybe more people mm-hmm. may have stayed at a Hyatt Regency and maybe stayed at one of the nicer Hiltons. That's the comparable uh, aspect of it as far as the room goes. Uh, Club level, that is a biggie, biggie, biggie. Um, Four Seasons, Ritz-Carlton, that type of a a five-star property, club levels are phenomenal. You could literally sit there and not even go out for one meal. That's how great they are. Just wonderful, expensive wines and champagnes, full spreads every time you walk in there for, you know, whether it's lunch, whether it's appetizers and desserts. So those those are the differences. But then again, you don't, you don't have the Seven Seas Lagoon, you know, you don't have Cinderella's Castle sitting in the distance. So those are the trade-offs.
2: Before I, I kind of chime in with, with my thoughts, let's just talk about what the property is really going to be and where it's going to be. It's in, like I said, it's going to be in the northeast corner of the resort, right near uh, Bay Lake. And kind of, if you're looking at a map, an overhead map, it's uh, above where Port Orleans Riverside now sits it's going to convert the eagle pines and osprey ridge golf courses into this very luxury resort community it's going to be it's going to include the the four seasons hotel an 18 hole championship golf course and something i found very interesting which was single and multi-family vacation homes as well as fractional ownership translate timeshare vacation homes um um, There's not. Which,
0: you know what it sounds like to me. It sounds almost like it may have a Four Seasons resonance Club attached to it. And if you've ever stayed at one of those, it's pretty fantastic too. It sounds like what's happening all over the Orlando area. I don't know if you're familiar with Reunion Resorts, uh, the new Omni. They're all having it, They have a hotel, and they've all they all have attached to it golf courses, fractional ownerships, all sorts of villas, what they call condo hotels. And that is the way that Orlando is going right now. So it almost sounds like that's what they're adding to Disney property.
2: And, you know, I think that's very interesting. And again, we're we're speculating on a few things because a lot of details have not been brought out. But when we start talking about ownership on DBC, uh, on Disney property, and this is this is supposedly going to be very different than DVC, where you really don't right. own anything. And the concern, you know, that people have once again is what, when they talk about Epcot, the city, would be voting rights and things like that. And my speculation would be is that they would de-annex this section from the Reedy Creek Improvement District and maybe bring it back into Orange County. So they don't have that kind of voting issue for people that do have these, uh, these you know, ownership interests.
0: Right. And probably when you think of the ownership interest, you know, when you think of DVC, you think in terms, of course, in, in points, but you think in terms of maybe a week or so people own. Are people are going to use, where some of these residence clubs and some of these fractional ownerships, we're talking four, six, eight weeks a year. So it's a lot different. But plus, they put them, some people who, say, own a condo hotel, they actually own their, their whatever unit, and then they use it when they're going to be there, and the rest goes into the rental pool. So it's, it is a very different concept. It's going to be nothing like DVC. I can't see how it would be.
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing more details come out. Um, what we do know is that the hotel is probably going to open around 2010. We also know that the Eagle Pines uh, course is going to go away, and they are going to transform the Osprey course into a championship golf course. So obviously for people who are avid golfers and love what Disney has to offer, they're going to be And then does it sound that.
0: like they're going to rename the Eagle, Eagle course? Is that what you're hearing? That's what it sounded like. It sounded like one of them is going to be renamed as a 4 Seasons course. The other is going to be transformed into a championship course, right? Is I think that what you...
2: I think Osprey is going to be made named the, the made the championship course. What I actually think is that the Eagle Pines area is going to be where some of these vacation homes are going to be, so that may be and you going think away. They're
0: just going to run them through the courses.
2: They very well may, which yeah.
0: Is, is so typical. Uh, my new book that's coming out, this new edition of the book that's coming out this um, summer, late summer. It is going to include the reunion, which is a phenomenal property and I have a feeling it's going to be a lot like that just two beautiful golf courses running throughout there's water parks there's retail centers there's all kinds of different uh options as far as as um
2: accommodation
0: so you know that's what that's that's the trend in Florida and it sounds like you know Disney's kind of hopping on the the bandwagon with it
2: well, if I, can, if I can use my stepladder and climb up on my soapbox just for a second and give you my opinion. Um, I have read a lot of, you know, comments online that people aren't very happy about this because they feel like Disney is kind of going outside the company to do something that maybe they felt they couldn't do on their own. And I don't look at it that way. I look at this instead as a perfect partnership because the level of service that we've all come to expect from Disney is really what sets Disney apart from anywhere else. And obviously, bringing that to the next level with what we are come to expect from the name of Four Seasons, their personification in their employees and how they have that single focus for great service, that's the same thing that you get with Disney. They, they share that ca- common kind of uh, philosophy and mission statement about treating guests. So I think this is great that they offer yet another level for people to go to, if that is what they want to do, is if that is the level of accommodation that they want to do. And my question to you is, how is this going to affect those high-end guests, for lack of a better word, who previously had felt that the Ritz-Carlton or the Marriott World Center was was the very best place to stay in Orlando?
0: Well, honestly, I think that the fourth season is going to be... Marriott World Center, to me, is nowhere on level with what the Ritz-Carlton is in Orlando. So I think this new Four Seasons is going to be on that same level as the Ritz-Carlton putt. It's going to be on Disney property. And that's always been the problem with the Ritz-Carlton as far as I'm concerned. I think it's the perfect property, but, you know, you're going to drive 15 minutes before you even get on Disney property. With the Four Seasons, I'm sure, it's going to have Walt Disney Transportation. It's going to have all of those benefits of being on Disney property. But, you know, just this fabulous, wonderful resort. So I just think it's the best of both worlds. Well, You, you know, you... the only other way Disney could have done it better maybe, is to have built, and you tell me, Mr. Trivia, <laughs> I mean, is there really room on the Seven Seas Lagoon to build one more resort? There I is. Mean, that's r- what they keep saying.
2: There is room, and what I had heard years ago is that in between the Contemporary and the Transportation and Ticket Center, they had right. actually done some tests of the, of the, the, the land to see... If it was feasible to get another hotel built there. And supposedly they had sunk some pylons into the ground that very quickly, over a short amount of time, sunk. Oh,
0: so that's not possible. Well, that's what I'm thinking. If they could have possibly put another Disney resort there, but made it a true five-star resort, which the Grand Floridian, again,
2: is not. Well, the caveat to that That is... That would be the perfect thing. Listen, I I saw... I mean, obviously I didn't see it, but in, in hindsight, you see what Disney did... In the creation of the Seven Seas Lagoon and the transformation of Bay Lake and how they turn this swamp into what it is today so could they, they do, do it? what they want to do. <laughs> they can do it now I believe in the magic I do you know if they do you know if they want to if they can build it they they will build it um, I mean
0: you know to me the most magical part of Disney is are the the uh, Magic Kingdom resorts I mean mm-hmm. I don't think anything can beat them because you're, it's just so wonderful when you're there and you're looking over the seven Seas again. You can see the castle. So if they had built a five-star resort there, that would be the perfect scenario, in my opinion. This is maybe the second most perfect scenario. What about, what is it, Discovery Island? Is that what it was mm-hmm. called? Discovery Island. That would be, I think, another fabulous place to build a five-star resort.
2: There have been I mean, rumors for end, years... It's, 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 about building honeymoon cottages on there, uh, you know, some sort of special event venue. Um,
0: It would be so wonderful.
2: Yeah, I've actually seen pictures of Discovery Island in in its present state, and it's a mess. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure it is. It's a mess due to the hurricanes, and it's also a mess due to... uh, It it has been so overrun by... um, By different species of birds and animals that they would have to take care of those environmental issues first before I they think can think of anything else. I think
0: the major else. problem is the environmental impact of using that island. I think, I think you're right on that. But um, anyway, I think I got off course there. What was,
2: <laughs> that's okay. what was like? I do it all the time. Don't worry about it. My question, <laughs> my question to you is this, um, and it's somewhat rhetorical, but uh, the fact that this is going to be an outside, outside management company, an outside hotel coming on property a la Swan and Dolphin, how is uh, that going to affect things like Theming. Um, how is that going to affect benefits as, as you would get in, say, for example, the Grand Floridian? Extra magic hours, use of Disney transportation. Yeah, well,
0: but but think about it. The only thing that I can think of, and correct me if I'm wrong, the Swan and Dolphin don't have that the other Disney resorts do, is the uh, Magical Express. They still get uh, extra magic hours. And now they, they and oh, charging. That's the other thing. They cannot charge. Charge the back to resorts. the right. But. Uh, you know, Disney may overcome that issue also. I mean, like you say, they can do what they want.
1: Right.
0: And, and I think they may try. They may start with, say, okay, we don't, we don't, we don't you know, deliver to the, to the hotel and we don't do certain things, we don't do charging privileges. But if they want to, they can. So they may find that if there's enough complaints and, and there's enough problem with it, they'll switch. I, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be an issue. And, frankly, I don't think people that can afford a Four Seasons they do care about the extra magic hours, but Not it really. just doesn't matter. Right. You know, they just flip out their, you know, Platinum American Express card <laughs> and go at it. They don't care. And I think you know, So what's right. the difference between charging to your room key and an American Express right. card? I mean, I don't see a big
2: difference. And I think they, they would, you know, very easily forego any sort of theming for what you get from the four seasons. You know, that, you know that level you know, of elegance. I,
0: I right. I mean, I think you're right. Sometimes, actually... A lot of people do not like that. I mean, I know it's hard to believe because I love it. But a lot of people do not like, they just think, oh, Disney, you know. They, they don't go because they just think, I don't want to go to Disney. And then when they get there, they realize, you know, there are some great hotels. There's some fabulous restaurants. You know, that, that was my point in stretching the luxury side of Walt Disney World. I think they're surprised when they get there. But if they know that they can go and they can stay at a Four Seasons Resort and it's right on Disney property, they really don't care about things.
2: I agree with you. And I'm actually going to ask for your opinion about the other end of the spectrum, because the other part of the announcement that Disney made was a value oriented destination. They're going to what's called a mixed use tourism district. This is going to be down on the western edge of the resort, um, right by the uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom, by the gateway down there by the western beltway. It's going to be comparable in size to Disney's Animal Kingdom, about 450 acres. And what it's going to include is about four to five thousand low to mid-rise, value-priced lodging units, and up to 500,000 square feet of commercial space. It's going to be designed around a very pedestrian-friendly uh, retail village, and it's going to have, you know, shopping and service for cast members as well as not only guests but nearby residents and other people that come, you know, to this area of Central Florida. This is going to be built in phases probably over the next eight to ten years, years. and it obviously, you know, screams out similarities yeah. to downtown Disney uh, with right. this third-party kind of lodging, much like the, uh, right. the the seven partner hotels in downtown Disney, the right. outside restaurants, um, and obviously non-Disney oh. shopping experiences. Um so with this Disney is is literally running the gamut from the the very very high end down to appealing to those people who I assume would normally have stayed off property at you know, a Howard Johnson, a Motel 6, a Days Inn, who now can stay on property. They have the convenience of shopping. They have all these other kind of restaurants. If they don't want to go and eat at, you know, yeah. Victoria and Albert's, no. they can get something um, quick right there. What, how do you think about this and how it compares to what well, they doing on the other again, side? Well,
0: again, you know, it all depends on what Disney's going to offer with that. Are they, gonna, are they going to let you have charging privileges? Can you do the dining plan? You know, there's so many things because I think the dining plan – for value uh, clients are is so popular. For uproaring clients, it's not very popular because it's, it's not a good deal for them when they're going to trade two meals for one signature meal, and that's where they want to eat.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, until we learn more about it, you know, to me, unless Disney gives them all those benefits, you know, it may not be much more lucrative than staying, you know, at, I don't know, the Embassy Suites. You know what I'm saying?
1: Right. But it, I, it
0: just depends on what Disney's going to give, you know, what they're going to give with that hotel, what kind of benefits. So, right. you know, I, I don't keep up with the value end of it, so I don't even know how, how popular are they. I mean, are they always sold out, Lou? I, well, I don't know.
2: Well, this is this is the, the question, one of the questions that, that this begged when I saw this is I think it's great that they are appealing to, to the value end of the market and you see a lot of the the print and media ads now say that you can go to disney with a family of four for a week for fifteen hundred dollars and that that's a very big draw for people who say hey you know what maybe we don't have to save up for three years maybe we we can kind of do some things and go this year but i wonder how
0: brilliant marketing tactic
2: you're right i think it's great how does this affect the value resorts which are not always filled and i mean let let's be realistic. So you're
0: saying, See that's what I'm saying. I don't know. It's the luxury resorts are so hard to get into. Right. So you're thinking that they're just, it's gonna be overkill with another value resort.
2: I don't think that it's overkill. You know, I wonder about things like, you know, are they gonna be themed like value resorts? Are they gonna be designated value resorts? Um you know, are they doing this in lieu of finishing the other half of Pop Century? How does this affect what's going on with the Legendary Years building which, you know, is sitting there abandoned? For so many years. Uh, I, I think sorry, what building? The the legend pop century is basically built into two sections separated by Hourglass Lake. The classic years, which is open now, covers the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. The legendary years covers 10s, 20s, 30s, and 40s. Well, if you take the, the entrance road to Pop Century all the way to the end, it's blocked off by a fence, but you can still see those legendary years buildings sitting there. And it looks as though it was a post-apocalyptic war zone.
0: I had, I had no <laughs> idea. Maybe they're going to be more like a moderate resort. I, I mean, think about it. When was the last moderate resort? You know, it, these value resorts have gone crazy. And maybe, maybe they're thinking it more along those lines. Are they, you know, when they say you know, it's a value, more of a lower-end resort, maybe they're thinking the moderate.
2: I mean, I, I don't think In lieu think was, of
0: another moderate
1: resort.
2: Possibly. Possibly. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I think this actually is a very good thing on a number of levels. Again, offering more options is always a good thing. I think this helps people who, for example, are staying down at Disney's Animal Kingdom or the All-Star Resorts, who for a long time I always talk about location, location, location. why? While Animal Kingdom Lodge is beautiful and secluded, to some people, that's not a benefit because it, it is such a hike to get to Downtown Disney or it's to a get a
0: long way. It's when you a long way <laughs> from the Animal Kingdom. It feels like forever.
2: It, it is a long way. So now you have this other area that you can go to to shop, to eat, um, and other hotels to stay in.
0: And 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 for comparison, look how far it is to Downtown Disney too. Exactly. So they may not go over to Downtown Disney. They may head over, and sometimes though they they build up, you know, this fabulous new shop. Well, you know. It's, you know, I can't imagine it's going to be anything near as big as downtown Disney. So, you know, what's going to be retail? What do they mean? How many shops? You know, it may be something very small, you know.
2: Well, I mean, obviously, it you know, it, it's, I think it's a double-edged sword for local businesses because it obviously gives local businesses and some of these other chain establishes, establishments an opportunity to get on Disney property to get some of those people that would normally not have driven out to Crossroads or some of the places out there. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, it's going to really hurt those places because now people who are on Disney property have no reason to leave.
0: To and leave, exactly. I mean I, I mean, I leave a lot because of the other hotels, but as far as shopping, I mean, I maybe the Prime Outlet malls, but nothing's really that appealing to me. And it's I think...
2: I think this also offers a place for cast members and, and college program people to go and shop in addition to downtown Disney so they don't have to go off property because they can go and get some of the, you know, items that they need without having to go off to, you know, Crossroads or Walgreens or, or you know, some of the other restaurants exactly. that may be out there. So yeah.
0: And especially if you're talking about, well, I, uh, as far as like, the Four Seasons area, you know, if there's going to be fractional ownership, that type of thing, those are people that are going to want groceries. Mm-hmm. So that might be, you know, are they going to do that type of thing over at the value area?
2: That's what I'm understanding. Are they gonna. Uh, oh, no, not in this section, no. There's not supposed to be any sort no, of homes okay. or Well, it like seems that.
0: like to me, that's where it would really work. I mean, people want groceries, and there's Goodings, you mm-hmm. know, which is expensive at the crossroads. And then, although there is a Publix across, you know, on Vineland over there by, by uh, the Prime, Prime Outlets. So that's another option for
2: groceries. Well, the, the, you know, a
0: lot of people leave, like you say, to go to a Walgreens or go to a grocery
2: store. And a lot of people can't leave to go to these places. But now, if you're staying on Disney property, you can take a yeah. Disney bus to this area. Top it, the
0: bus,
2: it, yeah. It, it's a slam dunk. You no longer have to worry, especially for somebody that travels with, with children and know that you have to go get milk, you have to get diapers, you have things that you just can't buy in the general store. You know, at, at your resort, um, this is a great thing. It would be. A I, I nice think this off. is a great thing. So
0: It would be nice. But, you know, again, the people who are, you know, complaining about it, I don't hear any complaints about the Swan and the Dolphin being right there on Disney property, managed by the, you know, the Weston and the Sheraton. So, you know, it'll all work out. It'll all, you know, be great in the end. I mean, I think the Swan and Dolphin has, has a really great place on Walt Disney World property. It's a wonderful convention area. They have some really, you know, some nicer rooms at a much better price than mm-hmm. anything on Disney property. So, you know, they have a Mandara spa, which I think is the best (laughs) spa on Disney property. You know me and those spas, Liz.
2: <laughs> this is why I keep you away from my wife as much as possible. Oh, and I
0: didn't even think about that. before woman is bound to have another
2: spa. Whoa! <laughs> I'll bet you now cannot I'm really wait. Yeah,
0: really excited. I know.
2: You you can't wait to do start doing your quote unquote research for your next book. So. Uh
0: huh. I know. I know. It's it's rough, but somebody's got to
2: do it. <laughs> well, it's uh like you said. I I think I think both of these properties are a good thing. I think they all have their their place in the circle of life they all fill their niche high end, low end much like the swan and dolphin fill their niche so i think it's good things i'm going to be encouraged and anxiously waiting to see more details as they come out and we
0: don't have that long to wait on the four seasons if they're only talking to 2010
2: right i i think we're going to start seeing some work taking place um very quickly very very quickly and, over there.
0: well one other thing we didn't even discuss with the hill what, what is it the hilton that's, that's going to have uh this is it the bonnet creek area they're building two properties somewhere.
2: Right. Well, aren't they... At the Bonnet Creek Resort, I was going to ask you, aren't they building um, another... That's not
0: Disney property, but...
2: It's technically not Disney property. It's um,
0: technically not Disney property. There, there's a timeshare over there right now.
2: And aren't they building a a, a Ritz-Carlton or a... I'm sorry, a, a Waldorf Astoria. Aren't they building a... Yeah,
0: a Waldorf Astoria. Exactly.
2: Well, the, it... I look, mean,
0: that's another whole aspect there. It won't be on Disney property, per right.
2: se. But it's the, there. It's there, but
0: it's there. I mean, you know, the luxury market in Wal in uh, Disney and Orlando, is absolutely booming. I cannot even decide because every time I put a hotel on my new edition, I have to drop a hotel out, and it's kind of mind-boggling because it, there are just so many of them coming out online. Well, I don't know what to put in and what to leave out.
2: And, and that's the thing. It just, it. I think it, it speaks volumes about what you know. For them to have all these high-end things, there's obviously a need for them. There's obviously a desire for them. So. Oh, there's
0: a need, and there is a desire, and and again, there is a five star hotel missing on Disney property. So, hopefully, this is going to fill it, fill the bill.
2: Well, I'm I'm looking forward to checking out, and um, if uh, if my son and daughter's grandma and grandpa's listening, we we would love for you to take the kids and us down so we can check out the new four seasons. <laughs> check it out, research. <laughs> That's right, because we just left Pop Century, so I'd like to check out the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> Kara, <laughs> uh, thank oh, you well. for um, thank oh. you for giving. Me, if you have a few minutes, you want to stay. I have a couple other news items. I'd love to for you to kind of hang I on would, with me. And, I
0: will. I will. It was fun talking.
2: Good. Because um, let's talk about something else that we both enjoy um, over at Walt Disney World. I know, and that's food. And I and it ah. wouldn't it wouldn't be an episode of the show if I didn't talk about food. Uh,
0: let's talk food. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the first is, is that I'm sure you know by now. But uh, originally Alfredo de Roma Restaurante in the Italy Pavilion of, of Epcot's World Showcase, I found out is definitely closing, and the, the closing date is going to be August 31st of this year. I have and talk-
0: I know some people are upset, but I say here, here. I thought it was one of the worst uh, World Showcase restaurants. What do you think, Lou? You,
2: you led me to my question for you as, as to what you thought about it. and Were you happy or upset Never about it? Never liked it. it. Okay. Never
0: liked it. I mean, I thought the people were friendly. I, you know, I thought it was a lovely restaurant. Uh, every time I went in there, it was just so hit or miss. And I, I just, you know, did for an Italian restaurant, it can be so... Italian restaurants can be so fabulous. I was so disappointed in that restaurant. So, but I, I am imagining another one's going to take its place. I mean, what have you heard?
2: Well, all that the cast members have told me is that Disney is being somewhat vague in what they're telling them. But the cast members that are working there have been told... Not to worry, they are not going to lose their jobs. There is another new dining experience, as they like to call it to the cast members, that is coming in. Um, It it is obviously not going to be something like an Olive Garden or a chain restaurant like that. I would hope not. I'm curious to see, you know, what, what direction they're going to take with it. Is it going to be something, you know, in a similar kind of vein as Alfredo's? Is it going to be something, I hate to use the term, lower end? Or is it going to be something on a, you know, more upscale, kind of modern, via... Il Molino kind of I don't Italian know, restaurant.
0: because uh, I think we both tried Gil uh, Molino, the new restaurant at Swan last week, and uh, it's so contemporary and just so hip and cool, but I don't know if I see that in World Showcase, but, right. you know, who knows, but, but I think anything, anything is going to be an improvement over what was there.
2: Well, I hope, listen, coming from the Italian background and uh, comparing every Italian restaurant to Sunday dinners at home, I, my uh, my standards for Italian food are very good. And like you said, it, it sometimes was hit or miss. I've had some very, very good meals there, and I've had some that were okay. Um, yeah. but, and when I did, I'd say, okay, well, I understand that I'm eating, you know, maybe in a theme park, so I'm not expecting as much. But I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true considering what well, you get at some of the, the other World opinion, Showcase restaurants.
0: All of the restaurants in the World Showcase are good. But I do not think they're, I don't think they're the best restaurants on Disney property by any means. I mean, if you want the best restaurants on Disney property, they're at the resorts. That's all there is to it, at the deluxe resorts. So, you know, I I guess I came not to expect so much out of the World Showcase restaurants, even though I think all of them have one or two fabulous dishes that everyone loves. But they're not the same quality as, say, a California Grill, a Flying Fish, or a Victorian Albert's, obviously. And they're not going to be.
2: True. Well, speaking of dining, uh, there's some other news that's coming. out and, and I mention it only because I wonder if this is, victim is the wrong term, if if this is a result of the Disney dining plan. Because during some of the peak times this spring, several of the um, restaurants on Disney property are going to be extending their hours. For example, Chef Mickey's from April 1st through the 7th, a notably very busy time of year, it's extending the breakfast server a half hour later, starting dinner an hour earlier. Uh, it's going to end its breakfast an hour and a half later starting April 8th. Um, start dinner service an hour earlier. The same thing is going to happen over at Mickey's Backyard Barbecue. There's going to have an additional showing at 6:30. Ohana's going to start dinner an hour earlier, um, end breakfast an hour later. Whispering Canyon. So this is kind of happening around property um both uh, right, in the resort I
0: guess it was was it the Christmas holidays or something that they did that already. So it must have worked well, I suppose.
2: But, right. yeah,
0: I think it's the dining plan. I mean, I, mean, don't
2: I, you? I think the, the 4 p.m. dinner starting is not, you know, the, the Del Boca Vista early bird special for, for senior citizens. I think it's really as a result of people's inability to get reservations at these, at these uh, restaurants.
0: And especially, yeah, exactly. And especially those that count as one meal in the dining plan. And, you know, I haven't noticed whether they're, have they been giving away the, you know, the free dining as part of their, uh, instead of, you know, giving a better rate uh, at, in the rooms, that you, they've been adding free dining instead as part of, their, part of their promotion for accommodations, Disney. And when that happens, it's just whack, it's really wacko. I mean, you can't eat anywhere on property without uh, priority, without advanced dining reservations.
2: And you really better know six months in advance, you know, the park that you're going to be at and what you feel like eating and at what time, okay. which is a shame and it and I don't mean to sound like I'm complaining but I just think that there's got to be a better way I think I've said this before you know you could do so much online with Disney I think if you were able to make dining reservations online and obviously have a system in place that will not allow overlap because right now I can call and make five different reservations at 630 if I wanted don't right. allow overlap and, and enforce some sort of non-cancellation policy you know whether it's $5 a person $10 a person to force people to say hey let me open this spot up for people who are definitely do want to go because you can't touch restaurants like La Cellier, you, you know, places like that. No,
0: I, every every time I walk up there, they, you know, I hear people saying, oh, no, we we've sold out for the day or for the week or whatever. Right. But but again, I think that the dining plan has changed all that. I don't it was not like that before this new lucrative dining plan. And frankly, I think it's changed those restaurants that are included as, you know, count as one full service meal. I think it's changed their menu also. I see the menu being more simplistic. Mm -hmm. I see it not half as exciting as it used to be. And uh, Disney's trying to make, you know, to make up for uh, the number one, the free dining that they give away. I mean, haven't you seen that in in these restaurants that you look at the menu and you think, wait a minute, there used to be 15 entrees and now there's six? And, and you're oh, right. One big example. One yeah.
2: big example. You're right. And, and that's a complaint that I have heard from a number of people um, about the menus themselves uh, being a victim of the dining plan. Yeah. So They it, don't
0: have the personality they used to have. The, those those uh, restaurants that aren't signature restaurants, the personality is gone. And, and I, I, I do think it's a victim of the dining plan.
2: Right, and you're right, because you, you do go to certain restaurants looking for that unique dish, something that you can't get everywhere else. And when, when, right, and when, it, when lunch starts to just be a commodity and it's the same thing everywhere, I, I can right. see why people would just want But, you it's know, the trade-off is... It's not
0: across the board, though. I'm sorry? It's not across the board. I was at Le Ferriers the other day, and their, their menu's, you know, a lot of fun, and there's some exciting things on the menu. And I, I don't see it there, but I see it at, at some other places, and it's really puzzling to me. So I don't know if it's the chef, I don't know if it's, you know, what Disney's instructed. I, I don't understand it, but it, it is strange.
2: Interesting. Interesting to say the least and interesting to see. I'll be curious to see if they offer the free dining again this year as they did last year.
0: I hope not. <laughs> no. <laughs> it is a, you know what? I'd really rather see them mark down the rooms 40% like they are used to.
2: Yeah. And I, they don't
0: do that anymore. If they, if they mark them down, they're like, you know, 10% or 15%. I'd rather get a, a less expensive room and not be... You know, a, you know, be on a
2: dining plan. Well, you wonder with because the addition the dining
0: of dining plan, you too much
2: anyway. But. With the addition of 5,000 plus rooms, you know, over the next decade or so, you wonder if, if that's going to somehow help level off or even, dare I say, lower room rates uh, across property. Uh, I, don't <laughs> I know. <happening>, <laughs> Wishful thinking, free dining, and <laughs> I lower <know>. room rates. <laughs>
0: I oh, know it. It just gets crazier every year, and 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 the restaurant prices get crazier every year. I mean, I I, I sit, you know I constantly have I have uh, menus on my website, and I'm sitting here right before we were talking, updating them from my trip last week. And I because I visually see as they go up every time I change them, mm-hmm. and it's kind of shocking, really, especially for ones that I haven't picked up say, in maybe a year, and and they've gone up four dollars a not. You know, some of them are $4 an entree more. That's a lot
2: of money. Well, that's why the dining plan is obviously so successful. I mean, it's, it's a exactly. no-brainer at that point.
0: They know what they're going to spend before right. they get
2: there, and there's no surprises. Right. Um, all right. Let's move um, away from food because now I'm starving. Over to Tomorrowland at the Magic Kingdom. Because they've just. Oh,
0: that's not re- half as exciting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I'm curious to see if you've seen this, what you think, because the Monsters Inc. pass holder preview was just announced. That's going to be Friday, March 30th through Sunday, April 1st, 2007. Um, the official opening date, I put official in uh, the kind of air quotes, is supposed to be April 2nd. Um, Coincidentally, the same day that the Grand Fiesta Tour starring the Three Caballeros is going to be opening in Epcot's Mexico Pavilion. Uh, My first question is, have you seen any of the soft previews for Monsters, Inc.? I,
0: I have not. I heard it was kind of a flop, though. Is that what you heard?
2: I, I have not... I unfur- kind
0: of went back to the drawing board, or, you know, I think it's supposed to be similar to Turtle Talk, right?
2: Right, it is that, that same type of interactive experience, um, and people can even text message jokes, and there's... From what I've heard from people, again, not having seen it myself, is that the original reaction was, eh. Which obviously is not what you want in your new... Your, your yeah. new um, but, but
0: then that was the reaction to Stitch, and they didn't Thanks exactly that much. I you thought the reaction hey, okay, to Stitch I've was got that an good? Idea. I got an idea. <laughs> Let's go back to that fabulous circle vision movie they used to have in this. That's what I
2: liked best. I uh, you know, I just had this conversation. We we were going down memory lane and Avenue of the Planets and we were talking about if you had wings and uh, Mission to Mars and how much I just love the you had the screen on the floor and the screen on the ceiling and it was great and you know, we all know how it What was s- that
0: one that it had the America movie? What was that?
2: America the Remember Beautiful. Remember
0: it was all about America?
2: It was America Can the Beautiful. Did
0: you cry every
2: time you saw it? <laughs> I, I never cried. Uh, <laughs> that was across the way and, and you know, fortunately, unfortunately, but, you know, with Monsters Inc., I, I've said this in the past, you know, this is a very tough thing because you're, you're talking about doing a comedy act day after day, so you have the repeatability factor, you have how do you appeal to kids, how do you appeal to adul- adults, and it seems like, they're, maybe they're not quite ready to pull this off yet because I did talk to some people this past week who did see some openings. They said, well, you know, one of the acts was good or, or two of the acts, but they weren't blown away. And, and that's a scary proposition for Disney who's launching this, this new, very expensive attraction in Tomorrowland, at the entrance well, to Tomorrowland.
0: think about it. The Turtle Talk with Crush is just a kind of a side attraction to a bigger attraction. And that works, okay? But they're making a whole attraction out of a similar mm-hmm product, a similar attraction, and and I don't think, I don't know if people are going to stand in line and wait for something like that.
2: Well, you know, I, I won't comment, and I won't speculate, because I haven't seen it for myself. I haven't uh, either,
0: I haven't either, I really can't say
2: if I like it or not. I do believe that, you know, Disney knows what they're doing, and, uh, you know, say, uh, other than for Stitch, <laughs> they are able to pull these things off, Stitch. other than Stitch, I unfortunately have to throw that in there. I
0: think everything else, they pulled it off, other than Stitch and the Imagination Ride. <laughs> <laughs> the imagination ride that has no imagination, but I that's another. Figment
2: fans are screaming left and right. <laughs> you know,
0: every once in a while they do kind of make a boo boo, but um, I don't
2: know. Well, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, much like we shall see what is going to come to the post show over at Spaceship Earth, because work is well underway for the new Siemens uh, post show, and as well as the Epcot VIP Center over at uh, Spaceship Earth. The VIP center is supposed to be called Nexus 21, and it's going to be for the use of Siemens employees and, as somebody who uses Siemens products at, uh, at my job, their customers. So it's going to be a, a hospitality center and a briefing center. It's going to sh- also showcase a lot of the company's um, innovations and technologies. It Siemens is such a broad company, from the medical aspect, w- w- which I deal with, to, you know, Sylvania light bulbs. Uh, so when I was there and when I did ride Spaceship Earth, there are construction walls up. You can see some scaffolding behind it. I tried to take pictures, but people were wondering what I was doing taking pictures of, of walls.
1: Well,
0: it is. it has been a sad space for quite a while. <laughs> So anything there is going to be a welcome relief. I mean, you just walk off Spaceship Earth and go, okay, this is it. You know, you're just missing what was there before.
2: So, well, the cast members I spoke to said, you know, a lot of work is going on back there, and Siemens is supposedly putting a lot of money into this, and it's going to be something that is going to wow you when you come off. Much like when um, the Global Neighborhood opened, you know, 20-some odd years ago. It, it was impressive, and it, wow! You know, you were able to touch the screen and make your dining reservations. They had so many great things there. Uh, hopefully, they are going to showcase some of those new technologies and give people a reason to stay. As you come off Spaceship Earth, which you know remains the most popular attraction at the parks.
0: Right, right. No, I think I think it'll be anything there. Like I say, will be fun, and it sounds like they're they're bound to do something really neat. So, all right, what about what's this? Are they going to redo the Spaceship Earth ride?
2: You know, that, that's that been something that they rumored for so, so long. And, and people were swearing up and down that they were going to gut Spaceship Earth. They were going to put a Time Racer's roller coaster in there. This was all part of a global thing called Project Gemini, which obviously has not taken place. Uh, with the non-events of, of Epcot's 25th, people were maybe hoping that something was going to change in Spaceship Earth. I just think logistically, uh, they are not going to pull out you know the guts or I don't even know if they could pull out the guts of such a popular ride and there's no reason to do it could Spaceship Earth maybe use some tweaking some updating absolutely Um, I I hope they don't do what the rumor has been about making it a roller coaster or making it a thrill ride I just don't see it ever happening
0: I I still love Spaceship Earth I don't
2: know about you all right simple yes or no question wand or no wand
0: oh (laughs) wand
2: you like the wand
0: I like the wand okay yeah. What
2: about you? Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a purist. I, I am an Epcot purist, and I thought
0: you want it the way it was.
2: I, I no thought there was now. something very elegant and very the, the, the symmetry of of the sphere and, and just the way it looked, and I, I liked it. I liked it just well, the way. Well, I heard
0: the wands was. coming down. Is it?
2: Yeah. You know, again, it's been one of those rumors. Who people knows? are saying. You know, people are emailing saying, "I, you know, I'm I'm seeing them. They're they're starting to take it down, and no. you know, I I just don't see that happening." But
0: Rumors, yes. They, did you notice that the uh, North Wing was torn, half torn down at the Contemporary?
2: Yes. I have some pictures. I'm going to put some of those up in the show notes. And uh, actually, next week, I'm going to have somebody come on and give us some very interesting news about what's going on up there on at the well, Contemporary. Well, I'm, I'm
0: interested to hear it. Of course, every time I, I go to the Contemporary or anywhere that has to do with DVC, I hear it. But uh, so good. I'll listen. I'll listen.
2: <laughs> well, we'll... um. Rather than, than break the segments up, I have just three little rumors for the Walt Disney World rumor mill, and you can kind of chime in, let me know what you think. The first is that I, I attended the Pirate and Princess Party this past Monday, the 5th, and uh, as, an, as an aside, really, really enjoyed it. Um, what cast members told me is that they are going to probably try and do this again later on in the year. They're going to test really? both interest in, in the event itself as well as the timing of it. What works better is, you know, February and March the best time to do it or is sometime later in the year I don't know where they're going to kind of shoehorn this in in between so many of the other events but um, they're probably not going to do as many parties as they did um, over the past month or so but uh, look for maybe within the next month or so them announcing a second set of of dates for Pirates and Princesses well
0: I hope before the next Edition because I don't know whether to add it or not. I don't know if it's going to be a regular thing or not. I, I heard I read the other day somewhere else that it's, it just hasn't been selling the way they thought. So I don't know.
2: You know, people are screaming at the iPods right now, going, "Well, Kara, I'll go down for you. I'll research it for you." <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm going to hire DM for that spa research now.
2: <laughs> That's Kara at Luxury. <laughs> the um, the second rumor uh, is over at the Disney MGM Studios. And uh, you will be able to meet and greet the Robinsons beginning on March 11th at the Disney MGM Studios over at the Magic of Disney Animation. They're going to work in between the Incredibles meet and greet times. But uh, this is obviously Disney's first push to try and introduce people to the movie and the characters. You're going to see Bowler Hat Guy. Lewis, and Wilbur Robinson um, all day at the Magic of Disney Animation. So before you make your plans, make sure you check online first or check with Disney when and what times those characters are going to be there. But, um, you know, it's obviously the next logical character meet and greet for uh, the next big movie push from Disney. And the final rumor I have is the most interesting of all because I have mentioned this in the past a number of times, and now I'm getting a little bit more what appears to be credible information And good or bad, the Haunted Mansion, we now have supposedly uh, dates certain for when it's going to go down for refurbishment. And I think the dates are are an interesting choice because it's supposed to go down Wednesday, June 6th and reopen Wednesday, September 12th, 2007. So you're talking about June, July, four months that it's going to be down. And my question is, you know, they're going to have the Haunted Mansion closed for July 4th. One of the busiest times of year.
0: Hmm.
2: So I, I'm, I'm lending That's some... That's
0: a pretty long refurbishment.
2: That is a very long refurbishment. And uh, granted that the Haunted Mansion does need some TLC. Um, I know the Doom Buggy's audio system has for some time I now. I did not
0: hear mine this last time at all. Perfect so. example.
2: Perfect example. And there's some other little things that they can tweak here and there. Four months, like you said, is a long time. Uh, you wonder, are we going to get the New Bride, much like Disneyland has. Are we going to get the floating Leota head like Disneyland has? Uh, One would assume so, only because of the length of time. But again, that is a long time for it to go down. Um, Obviously, people that are going down in the summer, and this is their one big trip, are going to be very, very disappointed to see, arguably, one of the most popular, if not a favorite attraction in the Magic Kingdom, down um, for their summer vacation. Get online for Pirates Now, kids. (laughs) (laughs) So that uh, that is all I have for uh, the news and uh, views section as well as the Walt Disney World rumor mill. If you have any comments, questions, news, or rumors that you want to share uh, either anonymously or by giving your name, you can send it over to lou at wdwradio.com where you can call our voicemail anytime at 206-202-4WDW. I, of course, want to thank my very special guest, the lovely and talented... Kara Goldsberry, she is the author of The Luxury Guide to Walt Disney World. You can go to her website at luxurydisneyguide.com um, I, you can all, I'm sure you can go there and volunteer to be one of her research assistants much like my wife has been doing for, for oh so many years. Kara, <laughs> thank you very much uh, for coming on. You know, as we hear more about what's going on with the Four Seasons I'd love to have you back and, and please keep in touch and let us know what you think. Thanks
0: so much for having me. It was fantastic. and fun.
2: I am recording live from the Disney MGM Studios and sitting here with a true Disney legend, and let me just say that it does not get any better than this. Uh, I must admit, out of all the interviews I've conducted, this was probably the most difficult to prepare for, and I mean it with the utmost respect and admiration for my very special guest, Uh, because the difficulty lies really in trying to... Take a relatively short amount of time to interview a person who has seen and done so much, not only with the Disney company, but in his career, knowing the stories he's able to tell and the opportunity to sit and chat with him is not just a pleasure, but it's honestly somewhat overwhelming. Uh, His extensive reputation and credits precede him, having not only done work with Disney, but as a travel writer as well. I am talking about none other than Disney legend Charles Ridgway, who recently authored a new book entitled Spinning Disney's World, Memories of a Magic Kingdom Press Agent. Charlie, welcome and thank you for appearing on the WDW radio show. Well,
3: thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to see you again, and I look forward to a lot of times in the future we can have some good times together.
2: I hope so. We've had a chance to kind of sit and, and chat sometimes at dinner, and the stories you've been able to tell uh, have been fascinating, and hopefully we can share some of those with our, our listeners and introduce them to your the new book that you just had that just came out because your book recounts stories not only that, that you as Walt Disney's press agent can tell, but you offer unique perspectives on Walt himself as well as the theme park and the entire company through so many years. Uh, your firsthand experience with Disneyland and Walt Disney World offers a truly unique look at the theme parks, and you offer stories that nobody else to date has been able to tell outside the company. So I said, who better than a person with his own window on Main Street to tell stories about the opening of Disneyland and Walt Disney World, uh, as well as uh, in his book, offer quotes by Walt Disney that only you were privy to. So I've had a chance to read the book cover to cover. I have to say that is definitely a must read for any fan of Walt Disney or the theme parks. So I'm really honored to be able to have this interview with you. Uh, Let's just give our our readers a little bit of a background before you begin. Your career in journalism began in 1947, when you wrote and edited for radio and newspapers. In 1952, Charlie moved to Los Angeles, where he joined the staff of the Los Angeles Mirror News. A few years later, he obviously realized what was going to be a historic event and phenomenon that it would become, and you covered the grand opening celebrations for a little place out of the way known as Disneyland. So... Uh, you know, as I said, before you started with Disney, you actually covered Disneyland's opening day as a as a travel writer. And the first question that comes to mind is, are the horror stories that we hear about, you know, some of the problems that, that Disney faced on opening day, are they really true or are they kind of a little exaggerated?
3: No, they were certainly there, although I claim to be perhaps the only guy around who was there and remembers it with great fondness. And as far as I was concerned, I had a great time. I may be the only one who did. Yes, there. are there were all kinds of things that hadn't been finished. Uh, actually, I, I went out about three months before the park opened to do the first feature story, I think, of any Metropolitan paper had done, and I borrowed a neighbor kid to take with me to uh, tie the story to it to get the pictures up. So the idea was that he was sneaking in for a sneak preview. Well, it was only about half done. We posed pictures. His name was David Potest, and he was a real pistol. He was a neighbor kid. I borrowed him for the day. And uh, we put him on the stagecoach, no horses, of course. We had him fishing in the river, but uh, in front of Frontierland, but there was no river. <laughs> and we had him posing in front of the castle in seven-league boots with an old cowboy hat on, and uh, the castle was about halfway up with scaffolding still up the side. And, of course, the street was was uh, dusty, and uh, it was a, uh, a very pleasant day in April. And the story actually appeared May. 1955 the exactly 50 years to the day when I went back for the beginning of the 50th anniversary of Disneyland which of course began three months before (laughs) it should have but that's the way things are Uh, but it was a great time and David uh, you know he we had a ball with him and he was obviously having fun and uh, the only problem was he went to school on Monday, and Monday afternoon his mother gets a call from the teacher that says, uh, would you come in for a, for a conference? And when she got there, you know, I said, well, you know, we encourage the kids to have imagination and so forth. But David came in today with this wild story, and he wouldn't admit that he was lying. <laughs> but it was, um, it was about three months later when I went out for the grand opening. Well, actually, it's the press premiere, or preview. It was obviously going to be a big occasion. Uh, all the, the celebrities of Hollywood were invited, all of Walt's friends, as well as the press from all over Los Angeles and a few from out of town, and they were going to do a live television show that day, which complicated things no end, I'm sure. I got there at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I took my wife with me, and we both got dressed up. She had a brand-new dress and shoes to match and so forth. And as we arrived, we were virtually the first ones to do so. And I think the PR people were probably really ticked off as about it. But as we walked up, Walt was up on the train station platform telling some painter that didn't miss a spot on the ceiling. And later I walked down the street as Walt was rehearsing his... um, Uh, Commercials in front of the castle with the swans swinging around uh, beside him and he was he was nervous as a cat I tell you he he was really really having trouble and he was flubbing the lines and the whole bit and I I didn't dare approach him and talk to him at the time because he was obviously too busy for that and after um, a little while I went back up to the press room and I gathered up some uh, press releases and pictures and so forth uh, in preparation for the day and watched a little bit of the preparations of, of the TV people and uh, finally, uh, about uh, 10.30 or so, I walked out on the street with my wife and the crowd was beginning to come in. It was, about, I guess, around 11. And we I said, we better go get something to eat before this crowd gets... <laughs> so we went down to the Red Wagon Inn, which was the premier restaurant, and then we had a wonderful prime rib uh, luncheon. Uh, we sat uh, just across the way from Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher when they were just uh, in love. Uh, yeah, they joked that um, they were late getting there because... Debbie had to change a flat tire and uh, there were several other uh, movie stars there as well and we had a great uh, lunch and as we came out uh, down off the porch of the restaurant why we saw the street was just totally loaded with people uh, and my wife said well we can come anytime I'm going home it's too big a crowd for me and it was it was hot people had uh, been in a traffic jam coming down the what was later the Santa Ana Freeway it was probably Manchester Avenue it's still at that point and so they were hot and tired by the time they got there uh the street was uh you know blacktop and it was so soft that the women's high heels were sinking into it and they were losing their their shoes um there was a gas leak in in uh front and uh behind the castle really where they had to move everybody out of the way while they they got that plugged up uh one of my, uh, what became a friend later, was escorting a state senator around, and they were riding on the riverboat, the Mark Twain, around uh, and uh, enjoying it very much And until the, a uh, window frame fell out <laughs> and fell down over the top of the head of this, <laughs> this official. And so it sort of spoiled the day for them. Uh, I stayed uh, in the press room off and on. Uh, for a while, and went out at uh, I think about one o'clock when they had the dedication ceremony in town square with Governor Knight and and um, his wife and the head of the Santa Fe Railroad and his wife and Walt. I'm not sure Lily was out there. I never did see her in that picture, but but I went out to watch it, and that's about all I did was was watch. And then uh, uh, because other people were there to cover things, I went back and sort of watched things on television as they did this hour television show, which was. Hilarious in many respects because they would—it uh, was done live—and they had cables all up and down the street. People were tripping over those all the time, and uh, uh, they would uh, transfer the—the the, um, master of ceremonies would transfer to a reporter, uh, Art Linkletter in Tomorrowland. Only he—it would go to Rob, Robert, Cum- Robert Cummings in uh, Frontierland. You know. Uh, it, it was certainly an exciting show, and after the show was over, not very long, I went out on the street. It was probably 5 o'clock, and the place was almost empty. Everybody had gotten tired, and the kids were crying, and they'd gone home. And I called Greta, and I said, come on back, we're going to go on some rides. So we rode everything in the park. Almost everything was operating. Now, during the day, many of the rides broke down. People were waiting in line forever, so it, it was... It was a catastrophe as far as they were concerned, but I thought it was just wonderful. All the notes that I sent in were laudatory. I just thought it was an amazing new place. Well, I looked at our paper on Monday morning. This was on Sunday. Next morning, I went down, and all the other columnists and people like that had written all these terrible (laughs) stories about how awful Disneyland was. Don't go. It's too crowded. They haven't finished, a, they don't even have drinking fountains. They're trying to make you drink Coca-Cola. Well, that wasn't the case at all. Walt had a choice of whether having drinking fountains or toilets, and he made the obvious choice. Uh, but they were complaining about everything they could. And, and for months ahead of time, of course, they were predicting that this was going to be a huge failure. Why would anybody go out there in the middle of nowhere in Anaheim to build this thing when they could build it where the people are? Well, Walt had a lot of vision on those, those things, and he, he was right, obviously, and they were wrong. They asked him, uh, you know, at the time, uh, what, what, you know, this is not obviously not finished. So when will it be done? He said, well, it's never going to be done as long as there's imagination in the world. Of course, that quote has been carried for all the years since. So I, I had a great time. I was sorry to see the the, the results for, from a PR standpoint, if I'd been in PR at the time. But um, actually, uh, it turned out that people ignored the the advice to stay away and rushed out to see what it was all about. And so they had... About 10,000 people, which was a lot in those days, for the next day was the first day that the public could get in. One of the problems that, well, that caused the problems on Sunday was that uh, they had invited what they expected to amount uh, to about 15,000 people, and 30,000 showed up. There was a mix-up in tickets, and I have my own explanation of that, because what they did was they sent out invitations that said, you and your family are invited to come to, to Disneyland for the opening send us back the cards and tell them how many people they are in the family. So they would send back a card saying, now we have five people. So they would send them out five cards, which said you and your family are invited to come to Disney World Land. So they, I think, handed them out to their favorite neighbor or their plumber or whoever. And so they had all these people that showed up. But at any rate, it was far more than they were prepared to handle and far more than they had for a long time to come. And yet in the first six weeks, they had a million visitors, which was obviously phenomenal. Except that when the summer came to the end, uh, the kids went back to school and all of a sudden the place was virtually empty. So Walt put in uh, the Mickey Mouse Circus, the Mouseketeers Circus, and brought the kids from the Mouse Show down for that and so forth and did lots of things to try to attract people during the off-season. But it was tough. And even when I went to work there eight years later, it was uh, we had many Friday afternoons it was a little rainy or something when we had a total of 2500 people in the park <laughs> you have that many people <laughs> on the street corner here uh, but it it was uh, certainly a phenomenal it wasn't long before it became became internationally famous uh, it was eight years later before I went to work there and I probably wouldn't have lasted more than a couple of weeks if anybody had any sense the second day I was there I was had this little office in the City Hall or right next to City Hall, what was called the police station. It was about twelve by twelve, but it was at least thirty feet high. It was, in a <laughs> uh and we had shelves up the side of the, of the office where we stored our pictures, uh, you know, contact sheets and so forth, and I was standing on the desk reaching up for a shelf with my back to the door and the door opened somebody walked in and said may we come in and I said sure it's not my damn place and it was Walt and several of the directors and if I, I if I survived that I guess I could survive anything but it was a wonderful time for the next four years when Walt was still around I got to work with him a lot uh when he was down at the park we didn't well, I certainly wasn't a confidant or a, an advisor in any way we were just the the publicity guy and uh, I had a boss named Eddie Mac who taught me everything I know about publicity and carried me through the many years after that. Uh, actually, I uh, began in 1963 and was, have still done a few things for him in the last year or so. So it's been well over 40 years that I've been involved in trying to publicize the park.
2: When people talk to people that, that have worked with Walt Disney, um, so often they talk with such respect and such reverence to him and what was it like you know working with somebody that you know is such an iconic figure and, and legend well he was not a anybody that bowled you over and yet when you finished talking with him you knew you you talked to
3: somebody really unusual he was he was an inspirational. He, he, I remember one night we sat and listened to him talk about what he was going to build, called Pirates of the Caribbean, and he talked for an hour and a half on it. And I'll swear it was more exciting to hear him listen to the Pirates was when he was finished, as as exciting as it has been in in both in all the parks because uh, it's here uh, in Florida. It's in, of course it originally was in California, and now it's in Paris as well. So uh, it's been one of the premier attractions and one of my favorites. Uh, but it was. Um, uh, certainly, a, a, a pleasure to listen to him tell about it, and he—I think those who worked with him were inspired by his his, his uh, total dedication to what he was doing. And that could be hard on you. I mean, he 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 expected people around him to to be as dedicated as he was, and some people just couldn't take that. But for those of us who who uh, were really enthralled with being there, it, it was a
2: treat to to work there, and it's something we'll remember forever. Six years after you were hired, you were promoted to publicity manager and then later director of press and publicity for Walt Disney World, which at the time was under construction. Tell us a little bit about that, you know, when you moved over towards the Florida project. Well, it was funny,
3: uh, if I can take a minute to tell about this, why in 1969, they decided to have a press conference down here. This was three years after Walt died to explain what we were going to build in the first phase on this 33,000 actually was about 28,000 acres at that point we added to it later and so we uh, had a press conference out on the edge of of town Uh, we had a theater we hired and we had models up and so forth and I was sent down to help out with the publicity on that and I had never been down here before Um, and it was uh, you know a real eye-opener and didn't I had no idea that I might be coming back a a few years later. Uh, But the thing I want to tell you is I probably am as responsible as anybody in letting the cat out of the bag about the whole idea of Disney World because in 1960. Five, we were having a tenth anniversary at Disneyland. We called it the Ten and we were inviting press from various parts of the country. And we'd bring them out on Walt's plane. Walt gave us his plane after he got through used it to go to the World's Fair and back. And he said, "Use it to bring some press down." He said, "Well, I'll bring their wives with them. If if the wives like it, the the, the guys won't <laughs> dare write anything bad about us." We invited the Miami Herald and the Daily News, or the Miami Herald and the News, and the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. And many of those didn't accept, so we did get somebody from the news, and the uh, Fort Lauderdale paper, and uh, uh, Alabama, a couple of papers in Alabama. And we needed some others, and somebody said, well, what about Orlando? And I said, what's Orlando? <laughs> and, which is pretty dumb, but uh, I just had never been in this part of the country before. So you, show, you can see how much I knew about it. Anyway, uh, three years later, um, uh, after Walt had died, and I'd uh, gone through some training and a few things, why we moved down here, I came down... When the place was uh, just a pile of dirt, really, uh, they had uh, dug out the what's now the Seven Seas Lagoon and moved about 700 cubic yards of earth around. They had stacked the earth up where the Magic Kingdom is now, so it could compress over a couple of years. And then they started digging a tunnel uh, down through the middle where uh, the tunnel is now, and down under Main Street, going down to the castle. And then came the October of 1971. We decided instead of doing what they had done at Disneyland, have everybody come out all that big day and be all involved with the, with the um, TV show and all that. Uh, we would plan to have it on the lightest day of the year, so we planned it in October. And The lightest, traditionally, the lightest day of the week is Friday, so we had it on a Friday in October, first Friday in October. And we hoped to have maybe 10,000 people for that day. Well, the newspapers in the area started to have sort of a contest among us to see who could guess... Uh, how many people we were going to have for opening Somebody said 20,000 and another paper said 50,000 another paper said 100,000. Finally, the Cocoa Beach paper, which had been used to the big space program uh, crowds, predicted we were going to have 200,000 people on opening day. Yeah. Well, Which was sort of ridiculous, but even worse, one of the correspondents over there picked up that story and transmitted it over wire services in Europe and added a zero in the process. So in Europe they said we were going to have two million people on opening day. But when it came around, we did wind up with a little less than 10,000 people at opening day and we had reporters we had not invited any press to come for that opening but a lot of them turned out including Time magazine the New York Times and so forth all the important publications around were here and uh, we had a briefing for him the night before at the Hilton Inn and uh, 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 told him what we could do and we agreed to come out at six o'clock the next morning and, and take them on a walkthrough so they could see the last baiters going out. And that was what well, it was, because we were still not totally done by any means. Uh, but on opening day, we wound up with 10,000 people, and the New York Times said it was a disappointing turnout. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it was sort of uh, mild then. You know, we had just a, a, a fair number of people that came in for the next few weeks until we got to Thanksgiving. Well, this was the first weekend that people, particularly in the southern part of the country, could drive in and bring their families and so forth. So on that Thanksgiving day, or the night before, we had people, uh, every hotel from here to Georgia was filled up. People were parked all up and down the roads. And, and I was just heard this story uh, yesterday that one of our, one of our uh, top guys was telling me that afternoon we had to close the parking lot at about 12 o'clock in order to Uh, hold the crowd down in the park uh, to a workable level and even then it was way overcrowded. And so there were people parked all up and down the north South Road for, you know, 10 or 15 miles away. And they were out on the side of the road playing, <laughs> playing ball and, and throwing a volleyball around and so forth. And uh, for three or four hours and kept asking, you know, when are you going to open? When are you going to open again? And later in the day, along about 5 or 6 o'clock, as is frequently the case, we were able to open. And Friday it was a similar crowd and the whole weekend was just a jam. And we knew that it was a success. And... Uh, tragically though um, Roy Disney who had been worried up to that point because that t- turnout had not been up to what <laughs> was needed uh, they were able to call him on that Thursday and tell him that that uh, it was a huge turnout and unfortunately he died of a heart attack that next night so uh, he was he was here to see it uh, his dream come true because he'd promised Walt that on his
2: deathbed that that he would see this new place open and he did your work at Walt Disney World obviously didn't end with the Magic Kingdom, and because you also helped open up Epcot Center, in 19, I still call it Epcot Center, in 1982. How, how was the opening of Epcot different than the opening of, of the Magic Kingdom? Well, long as we're on that Epcot Center business,
3: it was my idea, among others, that we call it Epcot Center because... It was not the experimental prototype community of tomorrow that Walt talked about. He talked about a, a city where people could live and people could come and see how they lived and try out all the new technologies. So, well. well When we got to thinking about it that didn't work too well to think about having a whole crowd of people come in and look at your new refrigerator every week didn't (laughs) sound so attractive so we began adapting and and walt himself said when he the initial drawings on epcot he said this isn't exactly what i have in mind but it'll give people an idea of the kind of future that i'm looking at so uh, we think that in many ways uh what's now called epcot uh is is a, a lot some of what he might have done if he'd been around long enough. Uh, Epcot was a, a, an amazing um, amalgamation of the new and the international. which Walt had an idea there was we would have the future world, but we'd have a kind of an international, at least the shopping area and so forth. So we took those two and carried forward with them. Uh, and for the opening of Epcot was, from a, my standpoint, was a most unusual thing. We sort of discovered for the first time the uh, availability of satellite as a means of publicity. That place looked so intriguing to people that the switchboards in the stations back home lit up like a Christmas tree. The general managers were called down, say, hey, stay over and do another piece the next night. So from then on, we, we used satellite uh, live feeds as a major publicity program. At various times, we had as many as 13 satellite uplinks in place, and 100, and, uh, well over 100, television stations going live out of here. In addition to the networks and people like that that would come on on their own and do their own thing.
2: Yeah, and, and you know it's funny because not only have you seen you know such probably amazing advances in technology to, to do you know what you do and to to uh, you know to broadcast and to allow people to report from Walt Disney World, but one thing that You had talked about was that Disney never paid for advertising. Disney was, you know, it prided itself on never paid for advertising. And you tell a story about the person that that um, suggested taking out a full page (laughs) ad in the Orlando Sentinel. As we were coming up to Epcot, this was, you know, a big
3: unknown thing. Disneyland was known now around the world, and Disney World, partly because of that, was also well known uh, internationally, uh, and as well as certainly across this country. But we weren't sure about Epcot yet, so uh, my boss uh, suggested to to his bosses that uh, they take out a full-page ad uh, in 25 papers across the country just saying Epcot is open. Well, he he almost got fired over that one because our our people at that point, their background had been in motion picture, and they were used to co-op advertising where they would go into a town to advertise a new film, and the local theaters would help pay for the advertising so co-op advertising was something they understood and we with the participants that we had with us like general motors or general electric or exxon or various companies that have been associated with us, they would do various promotional programs with us and we would share costs and so forth so we, we understood that but when it came to direct advertising our advertising budget compared to a company of the uh... Of even the size of it at that point was was minuscule uh, but um uh... Despite that, despite the, we didn't do the television, the the, 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 uh, re- the t- newspaper advertising, those television programs and uh, uh, the newspaper people that came uh, that opening day and so forth uh, resulted in surveys showed the next day that 95 percent of the United, people in the United States knew that Epcot was open. <laughs> Uh, I don't know that you could do it these days without that kind of thing. Obviously, over the years, the tele- the Disney television show, beginning with the one that started even before Disneyland opened, was a part of a huge part of the success of the parks.
2: In addition to word of mouth, which is of course always the best publicity. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because you know, with the advent of even newer technologies and new media like the internet, podcasting, blogging, um, you know, internet fan communities, how do you think that changes or affects? Uh, you know public relations and and that kind of p r for doesn 't well it it
3: certainly uh, does affect it hugely. Uh, there are many things that we did in those days that would be very difficult to do today. There are a lot of a lot of rules about what newspaper or, or news reporters ought to do and ought not to do that have changed over the years so it 's the place that tells itself and that 's really the basis of our whole publicity effort is to get people writers. To come and see it for themselves and report it. And of course, the new media uh, and, enlarges the scope of that uh, those opportunities immeasurably. Uh, and uh, it, it does complicate things, I think, because it means that there uh, are a lot of people coming in doing reports and so forth of great importance that we don't know where they come from or, <laughs> or anything along those lines. but. Uh, So, you know, it did change. And it's 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 still changing and changing very rapidly. uh, And it's amazing to see it. It's wonderful to see. uh,
2: But I don't know, it was awful good in those old days, too. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're right about, you know, the Internet. I mean, it is still kind of the Wild West out there because anybody can publish, anybody can podcast. But I think the one good thing is, for the most part, it's driven by people who share a common love and passion for Disney. So they do it because they really do enjoy it and they want to help kind of spread you know what they enjoy about it and uh, and their feelings about it to other people yeah sure a certain passion is what it's all about uh, and for that
3: reason uh, if we if we were not a, a, the kinda of place we are we'd be in trouble because people wouldn't like us but people come on our are, are fall in love with a place and they have to go out and tell somebody about it and now they have a way of doing it so yeah it it certainly has has broadened our field and I'm sure it's been of great help in ex- Seeing the company expand, uh, I remember in uh, the year that Mary Poppins came out, or the year, actually it was the year after Mary Poppins came out, Disneyland actually made more money than the movies did. And that was a shock to those people who made movies in Hollywood who had been, uh, really had told Walt, quit fiddling around with that funny little play thing down in Anaheim. I want to tell you one thing that uh, when Walt was around, it was an exciting time. It was the inspirational time, and all those kind of things. But when Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came on board in 1984, all of a sudden it was like Walt was back. The inspiration, the the uh, uh, willingness to take chances, uh, the do new things, was uh, was just an exciting time to be around. And at that time, they started. Uh, we, you know, we had uh, held back on building more hotels for years and years. Uh, when we had this huge demand, at one time you had to wait a year to get a reservation here. And so they decided to go ahead and build a few hotels. Well, they built 30 more hotels in the next, next few years. They built uh, three, uh, well, they built two water parks. Uh, they, they they expanded in all directions. They built Downtown Disney, which has turned out to be a huge. Uh, entertainment dining uh, area of, of great consequence and a great uh, help to the parks because you know in the winter time uh, off-season when the parks close early uh, there's not a whole lot to do it uh, it didn't used to be a whole lot to do so downtown Disney helps to fill that void and uh, we, we try to make sure that people who come uh, find the, what they want to do that, that they're able to, to have fun and particularly to have fun together as, as groups, whether they're families or school groups or bands or whatever they are. Uh, they, they It's a place that you need to have somebody you love to share with.
2: I've said it for a long time, and that's something I often write when I when I inscribe a book, and I say, you know, the real magic is in making the memories here with your family and friends, because that that's really what it's all about.
3: Well, and I guess that's what my book is all, all about, too, is spinning Disney's magic is, is much more about the memories that I have, which are all all favorable, i got to tell you, I can't remember any any place that I could have been or anything that I could have done that would have been as much fun. And we did crazy things, you know. Uh, there was a Donald Duck's 50th birthday. <laughs> we decided, wouldn't it be fun if we could get 50 white ducks to follow Donald down the street? Well, was, <laughs> uh, we none of us knew what, whether that could happen or not, so we called an expert. And they said, yeah, well, you can do it, but you've got to bond have Donald bond with the ducks from the time they're born, so we sent Donald down to uh, Miami to the hatchery, and he was there when they hatched out and got down on the floor and played around with them when they were little yellow balls of fur, and then we brought them back up and put them out at Fort Wilderness, and they, as they grew up, why Donald would go out every day or two and uh, throw out some lettuce and get him to follow them around, and when they got old enough, we uh, made a little pen out behind my office in City Hall brought them over there and we decided well as long as they're going to a party they ought to have party hats on so we made some little cone shaped hats and we found a way of sticking them onto the top of the head and uh, we put some ribbons around their neck with the names uh, their names on them and we named them after Disney characters so you had Dopey Duck and Goofy Duck and Donald Duck uh, Duck and Alice in Wonderland Duck and so on um, and the, the, the problem we ran into was we started to put a hat on a duck and immediately all the other ducks attacked him. They were jealous. So we figured it out. We put a divider in the middle, and we'd put the hat on the duck, put him over the other side. As long as everybody had the hat on, they were fine. Uh, and it, it obviously was going to be a huge success, but you couldn't have them march that whole parade length uh, for day after day. So we built a float for them, had a little picket fence around it. They were put up on there, and they were the hit of the whole parade. And the funny part was that when they get warm, ducks they 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 opened and closed their mouths and there was a duck song being played at the time quack
2: quack quack and it looked like they were singing this with the song <laughs> that's great and that's you know you led me to to talking about the book itself because that's exactly what it's all about we talked about wanting to share our love and passion for something that we enjoyed so much and that's what you do in the book again it's spinning disney's world memories of a magic Kingdom press agent you know on a personal note as a completist and somebody that loves the place so much the book is definitely a true must-have. Um, I read it cover to cover in probably faster than I read any other book. And it's because of some of those stories that you share, stories that we've never heard before, even for some of us that have read so much. Part of, part of what I enjoyed was the fact that you had a chance to meet and host and entertain innumerable celebrities. Uh, and, and the names in the book are a true who's who of, of Hollywood celebrities and, and politics and international affairs. What, what's your favorite celebrity story or celebrity a- episode?
3: Well, that's a tough one. uh, There were a lot of them that I I enjoyed knowing. Uh, Actually, the stories in the book are the stories that I told over dinner table or something with a lot of these people. Most of them, of course, were newspaper or radio or television people that visited us or when I was visiting them. And uh, we'd start to talk about Disneyland or Disney World and I'd tell them about stories in the old days. So that's what these stories are all about. So uh, there were many that, uh, that I became, I, I felt, were good friends, even though we didn't see each other very often. Uh, Helen Hayes was one of my favorite people. I remember, i never forget one night, we were up in the Contemporary ho- Hotel looking out over this s- s- Seven Seas Lagoon, the lights of the Magic Kingdom, uh, and then the Polynesian Village, and the, the um, uh, Grand Floridian across the way. And she looked out over it and she said, you know, I have been all over the world. There's no sight like this at all. Another one was Bob Hope, who, 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 for some reason, you know, got my name, and, and I was the one he called usually when he wanted to visit. And he came down in this area frequently, and he'd call up and say, Hey, yeah, I want to go over and see the park." Well, there were two occasions. One was we were having a, 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 new parade, and I said, "Hi, how would you like to come and be the grand marshal of our parade?" So he did. We came <laughs> in, we just volunteered, and then we, when we did the groundbreaking for the Disney MGM Studios here out in the middle of the swamp. Uh, we built a, a billboard with a sort of a Hollywood uh, look to it and so forth, and we were going to do a little ceremony with uh, some fireworks and so forth, and Michael Eisner and Frank Wells were coming down for it. And two days ahead of time, <laughs> Bob called and said, Well, I'm going to be in town, and uh, said, I want to come by and <laughs> see what's new. And I said, Why don't you come and take part in our ceremony? So he did, and you know, everybody said, How would you get him to do that? <laughs>
2: And again, it's a who's who, you know, you, you not only work with, but you became, you befriended people like William F. Buckley and Lowell Thomas, David Brinkley, Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, Charlie Gibson. Uh, one of the other stories that I liked in there was uh, a story about Supreme Court Justice Warren Berger and his, uh, his com- commemoration for the Constitution's 200th anniversary.
3: Yeah, I actually, I was talking to Walter Cronkite and I used to drop in and see him in his office down again, just to chat. Uh, he, you, know, <laughs> you, know, the, you know, you don't realize how impressive, yeah, I just dropped in on Walter Crunk, well, I know. told him. That sounds, <laughs> it's got to be egotistical, and, and it is, I guess, because I'm not in the same league with Walter, By he stretched the imagination. But you ought to get with Warren Berger. He's looking for some way to promote this 200th anniversary of the Constitution. You think that's so important and it's a kind of, you know, he's having a sort of a dull response. So I, so I said, hey, that sounds like us. So we, he put us together and we talked to him and he agreed to come down and do an appearance and we kept it a secret. Uh, we we started we started our parade in honor of the of the Constitution and so forth, and uh, announced we were going to start it. And uh, in conjunction with the whole area, uh, it was a, a civic function really. At the new con- then new convention center, uh, we had a gathering of all the press that came down to cover this, and we'd invited several hundred and so on. And uh, so we had. Uh, and not announced this ahead of time. And when Warren Berger walked out on the stage and associated with Mickey Mouse, uh, it was a surprise, i got to tell you. But it's something, I, I'm not sure this is in the book, uh, and I haven't researched it, so I haven't got any names for you, but at the time, there was a famous, uh, I think, Associated Press, you you will probably recall, reporter who had been captured in Iraq and uh, held prisoner for some time and was released uh, just like three days before this event and one of our friend who was uh, one of my my other friends who was the editor of newsweek magazine uh, who this that's that the reporter was a newsweek magazine. uh i called him and say how about having him come town and take part in this event you know that the uh, playing tribute to the troops and all that sort of thing so uh, he did and and he came down and, and his was also even more of a surprise when when this celebrity newsman walked out on the stage so that event turned out to be memorable in many ways it uh, I'm not sure how much news it was certainly it got television exposure and newspaper exposure the following day it did uh, uh, certainly let people know that uh, that there there was
2: uh, appreciation for for what America was all about. And speaking of appreciation, you know, you focus not only stories about Hollywood celebrities and some of these international dignitaries, but you do stop to reminisce and you talk about the cast members in the parks, and you, you really evidence your true appreciation and admiration for them. How, how important do you feel the role of the cast member is here at, at the theme parks?
3: Well, none, none more so, and Walt realized that very early on, and of course, so much of this goes back to Walt. Uh, when they first started to hire people, uh, the jet managers, the guys who were uh, going to run the park, uh, said, well, we're going to go to the, uh, the carnivals and the uh, amusement parks around and hire people that really know, you know, how to run these things and whatnot. And Walt said, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to hire young people that are that willing to learn, and we'll train them to do things the Disney way. And so over the uh, next few months, and, and I think it perhaps took a year or so to do it, developed a program and whether in which the employees were no, not employees, they were cast members. They were p- playing a part on a vast outdoor stage. And their job was as a host or hostess, Not the people who came in are guests and needed to be treated as guests, not as customers, uh, that you, you, you exchange this friendly smile with them, you talk with them, you get to know them uh, in whatever way you can to be helpful. It certainly affects the guests, but I think it affects the whole attitude of the employees and the fact that it makes it more fun to work here than than the average country place, you know. Uh, No, I think uh, I have had so many friends, but one of the great joys of working here as I got older was the fact that I had young people to work with because we have a lot of young people here who uh, come and work for us. Uh, And, you know, Walt said, however, when they talked about hiring uh, about closing the park during the winter and that, that was suggested because uh, you remember that first fall uh, things are getting pretty light uh, and the people said well you know there nobody coming so we're we'll just close up for the winter as most amusement parks around the, the world did and uh, uh, Walt said no said we're, I, I don't want to have a staff of, of gypsies <laughs> I want people who are here here to stay and, and here, here who who can carry on the tradition from year to year, and so that's that's where it began and uh, what continues to today. Uh, many of those people, of course, stayed on to go on to uh, be in executive positions. Uh, Dick Nunes, who uh, started out as a trainer just out of college at uh, when Disneyland opened, uh, uh, was director of operations at Disneyland when I got there, uh, went on to become president and then chairman of the, all of the Disney parks for a number of years. Uh, Bob Matheson that I saw for the first time in a couple of years last, last night started out in uh, about not long before I went there uh, as a park announcer, and he grew uh, went up to be vice president of, um, of operation before he was done and one of the key people in the growth of the company. And we were talking about, I guess, this maybe is something that shouldn't be talked about, and I didn't think about mentioning it in the book. But uh, when, when Walt died... Uh, The family asked me not to let any press come into the park and interview people about what how sad they were that Walt was dead, because we didn't announce it. Uh, And uh, uh, at the only time I think we did anything at the end of the day, when we had our retreat ceremony, we announced that Walt Disney had died, but only to those people in town square. And we did not lower the flag to half-staff, as we certainly might have, because all of this was because they said Walt wouldn't have wanted people to be saddened by his death when they were there to have a good time in the park. So it was an emotional time for us and an emotional time for the nation in many ways. But we didn't want to have the flag flying at half staff to remind people about it every day of the week. And I, we tried to follow that policy even on national occasions where in the park we didn't lower the flag as uh, as many parts of the nation did and some people took that as being disrespectful and we finally have have changed to some extent and do a lower uh, the main flag to half staff when the nation is in mourning for things. I'm not sure uh, that there's any disrespect shown about it. Bob and I talked a little bit about it last night and uh, there are people who would argue that one with us but it's a part of the Disney philosophy that we've created another world where people can leave their everyday cares behind and forget about all the troubles
2: and all the wars and all the rest of this stuff. Let me ask you a couple questions on a personal level. You've opened at quick count probably seven of the theme parks. What do you, what do you think is your favorite, uh, whether it be for sentimental reasons or just favorite favorite of the parks to visit?
3: Well, I guess I'm like Walt. I really don't have a favorite attraction. He used to say the people were the favorites and, and I think it's, it's the the feeling you get when you're in I think all of the Disney parks are that way. I don't, I, I guess sentimentally, I have to say Disneyland is still kind of my favorite. It has a special charm about it. The others are uh, uh, the one here, the one in Paris, which I helped open, uh, and the one in Tokyo. All are much bigger, uh, but uh, and much grander. But I, Disneyland still has a special charm, and I kind of like the idea. Uh, when I went to help out with the opening of Hong Kong Disneyland a year or so ago, that it's exactly the same size that Disneyland was when I first knew it in 1955. It has the same number of attractions. The castle is a lot smaller than the one here, but it's it has that special charm, and I hope that it will continue to to grow in, uh, in popularity among uh, a culture that is very different from ours and is not uh, as anywhere near as aligned with the Disney culture as as Europe and even South America uh, but uh, it's doing very well
2: I think and I hope it even does better You know as we're sitting here talking and talking about your career, I- I'm an avid collector of, of Walt Disney World and theme park merchandise. I could only imagine what your <laughs> personal collection must include. What do you think you, your, your the one item is that you, it, it you really look upon most fondly or your most treasured collectible? You know, I guess unlike
3: you, I'm, I'm not <laughs> I'm not a pack rat, to put it bluntly. (laughs) Uh, And I did not collect many of the things that I could easily have collected over the years. I have uh, the uh, statues or plaques or whatever that they give out at uh, 10 or 15 or 25 or whatever number of years of service that are very special to me. One in particular is the Disney Legends Award, which is a small, I mean, a rather large uh, uh, statuary kind of thing. Um, But I guess maybe this favorite is uh four little pictures they were original cells uh from uh, donald duck is one of them and uh, chip and dale and uh I can't even think what the other uh, is at this point but they were um, a part of a, a rather special happening at, at disneyland years back uh, jack olson who was then head of uh, merchandise he went up to the studio one day and saw Guy guy and a bunch of original disney cells across the the lot in a new wheelbarrow. He said, where are you going with those? "Where We have to throw them out. We don't have room for them. <laughs> Can you imagine? The they, cells had not been sold at all up to this point. And Jack said, well, let me have those. I think maybe we could do something. So the first thing he did was totally destroy their value in a way. He, they were, the, you know, whatever they are, 12, 12 by 15 size. He cut them down to five by seven so they would fit in a nice little paper frame. <laughs> And so they put them on sale at Disneyland for a buck seventy-five, <laughs> and I bought f- three or four of them. And uh, we we framed them and put them up in my children's room when they were babies. And they outgrew that stage, and so we took them down and and took them out of the frames, and and I put them in a drawer somewhere. And years later, when the cells became like they were selling for hundred dollars or five thousand dollars or hundred thousand dollars, I. I went looking for him, and I couldn't find him anywhere. And we moved to to, to Florida, uh, and uh, as we were making another move, I ran across, uh, looked in the bottom of a drawer in one of our dressers, and there was this brown envelope. And sure enough, inside were these <laughs> original parts of cells. So I had them framed, and they're on my wall, and they're they're a favorite favorite uh, memento of mine. Uh, so I, you know, I don't know how much of a souvenir I have a I have a uh, Signed, uh, that went on the back of the railroad train in Disney World, or in Magic Kingdom, that uh, on the on the uh, 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 final car of the train, there's a round sign that goes on the back. They were getting ready to throw one of those out at the paint shop one day, and so I still have that.
2: <laughs> but uh, nothing very unusual. You know, people at home are shaking their heads and grabbing their heads, much like I just did, saying, oh, you know, these people don't know the value... Of what they had to, to, to people who are collectors and just and love the parks like we do. <laughs> yeah, you, um, you retired, and I use kind of the, the quotes in the middle of the air, in 1994, but you actually continue to consult on special events, including the launch of Disney's Animal Kingdom, uh, the Disney Cruise Line. You helped prepare uh, media for the opening of Hong Kong Disneyland, like you mentioned. But in 1999, uh, you received what I think you, and I, I know me as a fan, which would probably be the, the ultimate honor. You were named the Disney legend. You were honored with a window on Main Street uh, over the arcade. Tell us about the, that experience and that, that award and what it really means to you.
3: Well, it's, it, it certainly was a kind... Of, those two events were certainly a capping and a wonderful way to, to sort of end a career. I didn't quite call it de- quits at that point, but it came close, I guess. My old boss, Eddie Mack at Disneyland, uh, when he was getting ready to retire, uh, shortly after I moved to Florida, well, they gave him a window on Main Street. I said, I want one of those one day. So that, that was uh, you know, quite, quite rewarding as well. And uh, several of my friends uh, who have had their names up on the windows for a long time were involved very heavily in the construction or the design or whatever. They were high, high on, the, on the ladder at that point. They got their names up there. So to join them is a, a, a real, a real uh, special treat for me.
2: Well, much like that is that this is actually a very special treat for me to uh, to be able to sit and talk and share stories with somebody whose you know work I respect and whose name I get to see every time I go down Main Street really is a thrill. Uh, and I know for the people who go out and purchase the book again, it's spinning Disney's World memories of a Magic Kingdom press agent. We we know we just scratched the surface of some of the great stories that you have in there to share. Um, you know, Charles Ridgway, thank you so much for coming on. Um, again, your book is available at Local bookstores, it's also available at the Intrepid Traveler website. Uh, I think you'll be appearing this summer at the NFFC convention in Anaheim. Yes, I'll be there probably. Uh, also, I believe there's a convention here in or
3: uh, at Disney World in uh, September. I'll try to be at both of those and uh, <laughs> I'll bring the book along. <laughs> uh, but it, you know, I, it, it's something that I didn't anticipate. In fact, I didn't. Decide to write the book for a long time. Uh, all these people I've been talking about it when I would sit over at the dinner table. That's what this is a bunch of dinner, dinner stories. Uh, would say, "Hey, you ought to write a book," and I'd say, "Well, I've tried, but it seemed kind of dull to me." So uh, finally, one of my friends, who's a very good writer, uh, uh, who was written for National Geographic, one of my travel writer friends. In fact, I didn't do travel writing until I got got to the retirement stage. Um, anyway, he said, uh, "You write, you ought to write a book," <laughs> and I said, "Well, I've tried, and it. it didn't work." so he said, well, sit down with a tape recorder and talk it like you've been telling me over the dinner table. And uh, so that got me started. And, and the first chapter or two uh, got done that way. And then I, from then on, it started to flow. And it was, it was more fun doing than anything I've done in a long time. Uh, and it, the bringing back the memories, many of which had escaped me, uh, was, was really as rewarding as anything I've ever done. And I'm most pleased to share it with whoever uh, wants to have a, a peek in my soul.
2: <laughs> well, it's a fun read. It's fascinating. Again, the stories are stories that I, I had never heard and had never seen elsewhere. Uh, but you can also find out more information about Charlie and some of his other work at his website, which is travelphotoridgeway.com. And again, you can also go to intrepidtraveler.com. Now, and I'll put links up on the website in the show notes to uh, where you can get Charlie's book, where you can see Charlie. Uh, we'll keep in touch and you can tell me where you're going to be making some appearances and I'll help you uh, get the word about that. Because if you have the opportunity like I do to sit and talk to Charlie and, and have him meet him face to face and hear him and see him talk about some of these stories, it really is a true treat uh, for any Disney fan. Charlie, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit and, and share this with me. It's been fun. For this week's Best of the Best segment, we're inviting back an old friend, not an old friend, but a friend for a long time, Mike Scopa, uh, columnist at MousePlanet.com and co-host of the WDW Today podcast. Mike, welcome back. How you doing, old buddy Lou? Good, good. Thank you for joining <laughs> us on another Best of the Best segment. Mike, the uh, the Best of the Best question I'm going to throw out to you this week is tell us what is the best time of year to go or what's the best month to go to Walt Disney World for me there is no bad time but what is the best of the best
1: Wow you're absolutely right Lou there is no bad time uh, well let's see I guess you you I, I can make it I can make a case for I love July and August uh, I love the summer months I love I love the heat so and uh, I, I like those that time of year because the uh, the, the attractions are like almost all up. Their extended hours. I love the idea of being able to wear shorts every day. There's no question that it's going to be a warm, warm time of year, but that's not my favorite. And then I could also make a case for December, Christmas stuff going on, and of course, best, But that's not my favorite. Um, I guess if I had to choose, my favorite time to go down would be the month of October, and there are a couple of reasons why. Number one. You've got, you're right in the middle of the Food and Wine Festival, which is a great time to be on there, uh, especially if you're a big Epcot fan, which I am. Uh, going through World Showcase and, and seeing everything that's going on with the festival is, is just just a, a great time. Number two, the weather is pretty much perfect. It's still warm. It may not be too stifling, but it's, it's just warm enough so that you really, really enjoy your park touring. Uh, number three is that. Uh, Usually, uh, that month, I know that the first weekend in October is Race for the Cure and Race for the Taste uh, weekend, and I love doing those races. And uh, finally, I'm a big, big Halloween fan. I love Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. So, I mean, and I know that's going to October. So, you've got food and wine, you've got Race for the Taste, you've got great weather, you've got uh, the Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party, and you've got four good reasons for going down, plus... It's not that crowded in October, so that month just has so much going for it that that is my favorite month to go, October.
2: You know what, Mr. Scopa, Dr. Scopa, I see why people hang on your every word, because you may have just convinced me to change my opinion of what <laughs> I think the best time of year to go is. What First of well, when you started talking about loving the heat and going in the middle of summer, I said, this segment's totally getting cut out, <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> I, I try and avoid going in the middle of the summer, you know, like the plague if I can, but... I was going to say I like going the first week in December um, because in addition to it being value season and the crowds being very low and the weather being just perfect... Walt Disney World is decorated for the holidays. And I think it's a completely different, you know, plus experience going down when you have that, when you have the decorations, when you have the music, when you have some of the special events um, like the Very Merry Christmas Party. I know you believe it's the $50 cookie and you might be right, but it's fun nonetheless. (laughs) But Mouse Fest is going on and it's just there's something kind of extra magical again to hate you know hate to keep using that word but there is about going down that time but you're right october really does have a lot going for it and i do think the booty you parade is probably the best parade all year so
1: yes yes and the fireworks are very very good too it's just it's just a a, a perfect to me it's a, it's a perfect month it's got almost everything except of course the decorations and and in, uh, in, uh, December would have been my, my next choice, Lou, for sure. But the decorations, like you said, I agree 100%. It's just, if, if you've gone to Walt Disney World 100 million times, but have never gone down during the Christmas season, and then you go down during the Christmas season, it's like going down for the very first time.
2: Right. right. It really is. Well, anyway, too, as soon as you said food and wine, I'm like, oh, yeah, what was I thinking? <laughs> how, could, how could I not <laughs> pick October with food and wine? Exactly. So, well, great. Mike, there you go. The best of the best. The best month to visit Walt Disney World. I I think we're both now in agreement is October. And uh, I'll put a link up in, in the show notes to some of those special events we were talking about. Mike Scopa from Mouse Planet and WDW today. Thanks very much for coming on again, buddy.
1: You bet, Lou. See you in October.
2: See you. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of the WDW Radio Show. I want to thank you all for tuning in once again. I really, really do appreciate it. I also want to thank my special guests, Charles Ridgway, Cara Goldsberry, and Mike Scopa. I'll put links up in the show notes to their website and to their books. I also want to say thank you to everybody that I had a chance to get together with and meet this week down in Walt Disney World. Uh, There were so many of you, I really hate to mention names, especially since I stink with names to begin with, but uh, Brian and Beth and Gene and Nick, Steve and Vicky, Jim and Gary Chambers from the Mouse Lounge podcast. Uh, I really appreciate you guys coming over and saying hello and getting to spend a little bit of time with you guys down in the parks. I also want to direct your attention over to Deb Wills. You know that she is the owner of allearsnet.com. What you may not know is that she is also a 20-year breast cancer survivor, and she is very, very active in the fight against breast cancer and trying to raise funds and awareness about the disease. Well, for the eighth year in a row, Deb is taking part in the Avon Walk for Breast Cancer this May 2007. I'm going to put a link up in the show notes to Deb's uh Page over at the AvonFoundation.org site. Go over support Deb's efforts in any way you can, whether it's just morally or or by making a donation. I know she appreciates it as well as everybody that is part of such a worthy cause. I also want to mention some other friends of the show. You know Jonathan Dichter, the voice of WDW Radio, and check out his blog at VoiceOfMouseTunes.blogspot.com. Jeff Pepper's site at 2719Hyperion.blogspot.com. The Mouse Kingdom blog, Gary Chambers over at the Mouse Lounge podcast. It was great seeing you. My daughter still is calling you Mr. Bossy. Go check out Gary's show over there. The boys over at WDWToday.com, Paul Barry at Window to the Magic, Greg and Mike over at MiceCast. And of course, I would be remiss to not mention and congratulate Nathan Rose and Tim Devine over at the new Magical Definition podcast. Uh, Best of luck on the new show. You can go and visit their website at MagicalDefinition.com. And finally, I want to direct your attention over to Ricky Regranti, who is the host of the Inside the Magic podcast. Uh, As you know, Disney has been running a Disney Dream Job contest where you could actually win uh, a dream job over at Disney for a couple of different positions in Disneyland. Well, Ricky was actually just nominated as one of the 20 finalists for a Haunted Mansion butler, I'm going to put a link up in the show notes to his website where you can go and check out his video. Very, very well done. Very impressive. Go over. Cast your votes for Ricky. You can vote more than once. I don't think there's any sort of limit as to the number of times you can vote per day. So uh, it would be great to see another Disney podcaster make it and uh, help Ricky make his dream come true of being a Haunted Mansion butler. So, on upcoming shows, what do we got? We got more interviews with some special guests. We've got lots more trivia segments with both Jeff Pepper and some other folks as well. I promise you, I am going to get to the next installment of the Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World, as well as all of your emails and your voicemails. I promise I will definitely get to answer each and every one, either uh, via email or on the show. If you want to contact the show, if you have any suggestions, any news, rumors, anything that you want to share, you can email me anytime at lou at wdwradio.com, or you can call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. You can also go to the WDW radio message forums over at disneyworldtrivia.com. If you want to talk about anything that you heard on the show, make some suggestions or comments there as well. Finally, I also want to thank all of you who have been supporting the show, either via email, your votes on iTunes, or by digging the show, all of which really, really help, and I sincerely do appreciate. Thank you very, very much for all the support that you guys have given me since I've started. I'm not sure if you can tell, but I am having a lot of fun doing this. I hope you guys enjoy what I'm doing. I hope you look forward to it each week, much as I look forward to producing the show each and every week. So with that being said, I will uh, I'll end the show here. I will see you next week. Thanks again for tuning in. See ya!